Hello, I'm Marcus Louth and welcome to the latest edition of the UFO Insight Podcast, where we examine all things UFOs and aliens, conspiracies and mysteries, and all aspects of the paranormal. Okay, today we will be examining some of the apparent UFO and alien encounters of United States presidents throughout history, specifically those of the second half of the 20th century. Just what did they know, if anything, and just how close to the truth might they have gotten? And what about those presidents who had their own UFO encounters, one of which appears to have been an alien abduction? Indeed, as we might imagine, there are several accounts, rumours and conspiracies that have surrounded several of the presidents of the United States since the start of the modern UFO era in the late 1940s. Okay. If there is any truth to the Roswell crash in the summer of 1947, then it is almost certain that President Truman would have been aware of the apparently recovered alien vehicle that the United States military said it had in its possession. It is, though, another crash that appeared to embroil Truman in an encounter not only with a downed UFO, but a surviving extraterrestrial crew member, one we explored in our Reasons for UFO Secrecy podcast recently. According to the account, on the evening of 25th of March 1948 in the Aztec Desert in New Mexico, a disc-shaped object came blazing out of the sky and crashed into the sandy surface of the desert. In the book President Eisenhower's Close Encounters, Paul Blake Smith makes a compelling argument that not only was the Aztec crash very real and the account accurate, but that President Truman presided over an extraterrestrial being essentially taken into the care of the United States government. This claim surfaced by an apparent leaked briefing document from the late 1980s that came to light on a 2017 podcast by Heather Wade. The surviving alien was transported to another location, a facility within the Los Alamos National Laboratory. Not only did this alien being recover, but he spoke clear English and as such was able to communicate with his host, claiming his name was Setimus. This extraterrestrial spent just short of a year with representatives from the United States government, as well as several specially assigned military scientists. According to Smith's research, the extraterrestrial was discovered in a strange pod inside the crippled craft, seemingly asleep. Once he was transported to the research facility, it would seem he was revived and awakened. He had, despite his lack of height, the appearance of an adult Earth-like humanoid male, with a general appearance that was completely human. However, it appeared internally there were some slight differences. Although these are not documented, other claims of alien human-like entities that have ended up in the hands of the authorities, including some from the old Soviet Union, have also alluded to this detail of different internal organs. There was also a slight but unknown accent to his speech, and even more remarkable, it was clear that this alien entity had telepathic and psychic skills. He also had a very specific diet, seemingly he was less able to process the wide range of foods that the average human would. As Smith writes, not only did this alien being speak English very well, but he was also versed in homo sapien behaviour, modern geopolitics, and the planet Earth's troubled environment. It is interesting to note here the fact that many contact cases, both in the early years of the modern UFO era and the decades that followed, featured details that these apparent alien entities have a concern for the environment of our planet, just as was noted in the document in question. Ultimately, after spending time in New Mexico and then Vermont, in August 1949, he was suddenly moved back to New Mexico, specifically to Kirtland Air Force Base. 
Then, on 21st of August, an extraterrestrial craft landed on a remote desert property nearby, which he then boarded and left the Earth for a destination unknown. Of further interest are the official papers of President Truman, which Smith highlights in his book. To quote, Harry Truman's White House appointment logs from Monday, August 1st, 1949, reveal that the Republican governor of Vermont, of all people, had called Vermont's Republican Senator George David Aiken the previous week and asked Aiken to set up an appointment with the president for 12.15pm that day in the Oval Office. It had to have been about something pretty darn important, considering these circumstances. Could this important reason have been the impending arrival of an entity from another world? It would certainly have been something that would be of concern to the people involved. Smith continues that around the same time, Conservative Governor Ernest William Gibson Jr., a former decorated army infantryman from rural small town Vermont, travelled a long way to chat in private with Harry Truman, a chat that was off the record. It is said this meeting was barely 15 minutes long, but as Smith writes, something big was up. There were also other seemingly last-minute discreet meetings by high-ranking figures around this time which would suggest something major was about to, or indeed already was, happening behind the scenes. In late July, only days before the apparent moving of Settimus from Vermont to New Mexico, another Vermont congressman had a discreet meeting with President Truman at the White House. Of further interest, there was an apparent meeting in the Oval Office on 4th of August 1949 between President Truman and both his Secretary of State and his Defence Secretary, a meeting that once concluded saw all three travel to an unrecorded destination. What's more, there is no official record of the whereabouts until five days later. Could this have been the Vermont safe house and did they meet with Setimus? One of the people who could very well have been present during the encounters of President Truman was eventual president and at the time a high-ranking military officer, Dwight Eisenhower. And Eisenhower is at the centre of arguably one of the most explosive claims of extraterrestrial contact in history, a meeting between himself and representatives of an alien race. The alleged meeting between Eisenhower and what we recognise as the Grey Aliens first came to light in December 1984, when a little-known television producer and UFO researcher, Jamie Shandera, found an envelope left for him. The package had no return address, but did contain copies of documents that would change people's perception of the 20th century, and the events that might have actually shaped it. Now, these documents were stored on two rolls of 35mm film. The first one Shandera examined was labelled Top Secret, Magic Eyes Only. The title was even more intriguing. Briefing Document, Majestic 12, prepared for President-elect Dwight D. Eisenhower. The top secret writings appear to reveal the known presence of extraterrestrials right here on Earth. The Majestic 12 group were a collection of top scientists and military leaders who had been established in 1947 to investigate the UFO phenomena, right after, incidentally, the Roswell crash. While the papers were denounced as nothing more than a hoax by both the FBI and some UFO investigators, there have been many investigations into them, not least by the previously mentioned Paul Blake Smith. According to the widely known version of events, President Eisenhower suddenly disappeared on the evening of February 20th, 1954 while in California. This disappearance was quickly picked up on by the press that were trailing the president, and several rumours of his death even began to circulate. Eventually, an official statement was put out that the president had undergone emergency dental surgery and was now recovering. 
According to the thrust of the conspiracy, though, rather than undergoing emergency dental surgery, Eisenhower had been whisked off to an empty hangar at Edwards Air Force Base to meet with not one, but two different alien races on the same evening. The first of these was said to be from the Palladis star system, a race seemingly known as the Nordics, who were very human-looking, much like, incidentally, Septimus, who we examined earlier. Although the exact details of the talks are not fully known, it appears that the Nordics were offering help with technology, medical procedures and advancements, and a break away from fossil fuels for cleaner energy. However, a deal was not reached, and the meeting was abandoned. Then the account takes a twist. Following the departure of these Nordic aliens, a second extraterrestrial race arrived at the base to meet with Eisenhower and his entourage, the Greys. Unlike the Nordics, however, the Greys managed to make a deal with the President, an abundance of technology given only to the United States, in return for access to members of the population. Essentially, the Greys had been given permission to abduct and experiment on citizens of the country before wiping their memories and returning them unharmed. We might contemplate for a moment that surely a president of any country would not have agreed to such a deal. However, according to the allegedly leaked documents, that deal was agreed. Some say that Eisenhower was forced into making this deal and point to the Cold War and the perceived ever-present threat of the Soviet Union. Assuming the story of contact is true, would the Greys have given this technology to the Russians and so tipping the balance of world power to them had the United States not agreed? If we imagine for one moment that this agreement had been reached and signed by Eisenhower, you can start to understand why a country might want to keep quiet about allowing their own citizens to be abducted, by an alien race no less, in exchange for technology and weapons. It wasn't, however, the last meeting that Eisenhower and his staff would have with representatives from an extraterrestrial race. Just over three years later, in March 1957, with Eisenhower now serving his second term as president, a policeman in Alexandria, Virginia witnessed a strange craft descend out of the sky and land in a nearby field. The policeman watched as a strange man emerged from the craft and calmly walked towards him. He stated his name was Valiant Thor and that he had been sent to Earth by the High Council. Furthermore, by name, he requested to speak with President Eisenhower. The policeman took Thor to the Pentagon, where he did eventually speak with Eisenhower, as well as the Secretary of Defense and other Joint Chiefs. According to the story, Thor was given a three-year VIP status where he conducted numerous meetings with persons of high influence in the United States government. His mission was to voice concerns that the High Council had over the way humanity was evolving, in particular its apparent lust for nuclear weapons. Whether Valiant Thor is from the same race of aliens as the Nordics, who allegedly first met with Eisenhower three years earlier, is open to debate. The story, incidentally, is known to us via the book Stranger in the Pentagon by Frank Stranger. Pictures have emerged of the alleged Thor, and no one has come forward to debunk or discredit them. Okay, although it is a claim that we need to treat with a pinch of salt, an apparent alien encounter involving President Richard Nixon is certainly worth our attention here, although the encounter is not one with a live alien, but a deceased one. Now there are some discrepancies on the date this apparent incident took place, and this is something that we will come back to later. Most sources, though, state the incident to have unfolded in February 1974, when President Nixon was playing golf with his close friend and Hollywood star Jackie Gleason, just outside of Miami in South Florida. It is perhaps not surprising that given that both men had an interest in UFOs and the possibility of alien life, that it wasn't long before their chat turned to the subject. 
According to the account, relayed initially by Gleason's wife at the time, Beverly McKittrick, later that evening, a knock came at the Gleason's front door. When they answered, there stood Nixon. He was, however, on his own and with no security guards. It is claimed he said to Gleason that he wished to show him something, and with that, with Nixon himself driving an ordinary standard car, the two men drove off. Now, sceptics of the account point out how unlikely it was for a President of the United States to drive his own car in a residential neighbourhood, no less, and for the most part this would be correct. However, we should also point to the research of Mac Maloney, who claimed that Nixon was famous for giving his Secret Service detail the slip. They eventually arrived at Homestead Air Force Base. The two men, after Nixon presented his appropriate credentials to the security, entered the facility. In fact, Gleason is alleged to have recalled that as soon as security realised it was the President, they just sort of moved back. Gleason soon found himself being led down several corridors before his President friend led him into an otherwise off-limits room. Inside this room was the wreckage from a flying saucer, which the actor witnessed enclosed in several large cases. After several moments, Nixon led Gleason into another room. Inside this one were around half a dozen freezer-like boxes. Nixon gestured for his friend to approach one of the containers and look inside at its contents. When Gleason did so, he at first thought, it is claimed, he was looking at the bodies of young children. However, within seconds he realised that while the bodies were most definitely humanoid, they were not at all human. He would later describe them to his wife as having grey skin with larger than normal heads and large dark eyes. He would also recall that some of them looked quite old and most were terribly mangled. Indeed, it appeared very much as though the creatures had been involved in a terrible accident, which if they were connected to UFO wreckage, they probably had. Following this, Nixon drove the visibly shaken Gleason home. In fact, according to his wife, the actor would not eat or sleep for several days afterward, and was certainly not at all himself for several weeks. Okay, let's turn our attention for a moment to the discrepancy on the date that the account was said to have occurred. According to an article in the National Enquirer from 1983, in which Gleason's former wife is interviewed, it states that the year of the incident was 1973. In fact, the date is even mentioned, 19th of February. Now, what is interesting here is that records from the Nixon Library website reveal that he was indeed in Florida on that date, and what's more, he also attended a golf tournament at the previously mentioned golf course, a tournament organised by one Jackie Gleason. Might it be, then, that the account can have more truth in it than we might first suspect? Especially if we consider the discrepancy in dates and that February 1973 is the correct date of the encounter. It is also worth pointing out that President Nixon had served as Eisenhower's Vice President during the 1950s, and as we examined earlier, Eisenhower is at the centre of one of the most controversial and intriguing UFO and alien conspiracies in history. If we assume for one moment that the claims of Eisenhower's meetings with extraterrestrials in February 1954 was accurate, might Nixon have also been privy to that meeting, or at least the details of it? We might also wish to consider Jimmy Carter, who not only witnessed the UFO while campaigning to be governor of Georgia in 1969, but would make an official report of the sighting. He would also attempt to have as many UFO files made public as he could, and would succeed in releasing many such documents during his presidency. However, when he attempted to have full disclosure, even just for himself, he would meet a tremendous pushback. 
after contacting the FBI, who claims not to have many UFO files anyway, he would make similar requests of NASA and the CIA. The CIA would essentially refuse, as would NASA. Upon further investigation, it was suggested that the CIA was ordering NASA to not cooperate with the request for information. How true the account might be is perhaps open to question, but it is claimed that following this refusal, Carter was part of a briefing session on the subject at some point in the summer of 1977. It is not known what he was told, but one witness who claimed to have seen inside the room said that the president was sat at his desk following the meeting with his head in his hands and in tears. Perhaps we should make of that what we will. Now that report is one from well-respected UFO researcher Richard Dolan, who received it from an excellent source and someone well-placed within the CIA at the time. In short, we should perhaps treat the account seriously. Might it be that whatever was told to Carter that day, as UFO researcher Grant Cameron offers, is told to all presidents upon taking office? And whatever information is revealed, it must not only be clarifying for those who hear it, but disturbing in the extreme. Disturbing enough, it would seem, to bring a person to tears. Without a doubt, one of the most interesting presidents of the United States with regards to the possible existence of UFOs and what they might be is Ronald Reagan, who served out of the White House for the majority of the 1980s. Not only did Reagan have at least two UFO encounters before he became president, but he made some intriguing and bordering on startling statements both during his time in office and in the years that followed. Okay, let's start by quickly going over Reagan's UFO encounters, the first of which occurred somewhere between 1967 and 1975, and was very likely a case of alien abduction. On the night in question, while Reagan was governor of California, he and his wife Nancy were on their way to a party with one-time Hollywood acquaintances. However, by the time they arrived, much to their shock, they were a little over an hour late. They told how they had seen a strange light following them as they drove along the highway. Reagan eventually stopped the car so that he could get a better look. Both he and Nancy viewed the strange light for several moments before continuing on along their way. Speculation is rife that the missing time Ronald and Nancy were seemingly experiencing was proof of an abduction encounter. Whether Reagan pursued any type of hypnotic regression therapy to recover that time is unknown. The second incident is more precise and straightforward and occurred in late 1974. While flying to Bakersfield, California, a strange bright object became visible to both Reagan and his pilot Bill Poitner. The strange craft remained at their side for several moments before vanishing at an alarming speed. Neither man could offer a satisfactory explanation. Reagan would also make some remarkable statements while president. Perhaps one of the most intriguing and curious of these became public knowledge 20 years after he left the White House with the release of the book The Reagan Diaries. The entry in question was written in April 1985 and reads, Lunch with five top space scientists. It was fascinating. Space truly is the last frontier and some of the developments there in astronomy are like science fiction, except they are real. I learned that our shuttle capacity is such that we could orbit 300 people. Now as far as the general public were aware, the most sophisticated space shuttles of the time, of which there were only five, had a capacity for only eight people. It is then a curious statement indeed. Was Reagan simply mistaken? Have his words been perceived in the wrong way? Or is the entry genuine, based on information the president was briefed with on that day? 
Needless to say, the diary entry made many believe the rumours of a secret space programme under Reagan's watch were perhaps closer to the truth than many thought. As you might imagine, there are many theories concerning Reagan's time in charge of the United States, a time when America was without question the dominant economic and military power on the planet. The Star Wars project, for example, sold to the country and the wider Western world as a defence against the Soviet Union during the Cold War, was actually a protective measure against known hostile extraterrestrials, at least according to some researchers' theories. Even the end of the Cold War is to some people a response from a perceived outside threat, particularly so when viewed alongside Reagan's comments during a speech he made with Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev in 1988. He would say, completely matter-of-factly, I occasionally think how quickly our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside of this world. Let's listen to a small part of that speech now, as well as several others made by Reagan in which he very much appeared to allude to an alien presence. And apologies for the varying volume levels here, but it's definitely two minutes worth listening to. I couldn't help at one point in my discussions with privately with General Secretary Gorbachev. When you stop to think that we're all God's children wherever we may live in the world, I couldn't help but say to him, just think how easy his task and mine might be in these meetings that we held if suddenly there was a threat to this world from some other species from another planet outside in the universe. We'd forget all the little local differences that we have between our countries, and we would find out once and for all that we really are all human beings here on this earth together. Well, I don't suppose we can wait for some alien race to come down and threaten us, but I think that between us, we can bring about that realization. In our obsession with antagonisms of the moment, we often forget how much unites all the members of humanity. Perhaps we need some outside universal threat to make us recognize this common bound. I occasionally think how quickly our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. And yet, I ask you, is not an alien force already among us? What could be more alien to the universal aspirations of our peoples than war and the threat of war. I think maybe I'd answer it this way. I, I keep in my frustration sometimes, you know, actually, if you count some of the things going on in smaller countries and all, there have been about 114 wars since World War II. But I've often wondered, what if all of us in the world discovered that we were threatened by an outer a power from outer space, from another planet, wouldn't we all of a sudden find that we didn't have any differences between us at all? We were all human beings, citizens of the world, and wouldn't we come together to fight that particular threat? It is known that Reagan had an intense interest in the subject of UFOs and spent much of his time researching them, right down to possible connections to ancient Egypt and the ancient astronaut theory. Whether that was purely an interest that came from his own experiences before he became president, or whether that interest intensified when he learned the UFO secrets of the government when he did, remains open to debate. 
It is also worth mentioning an apparent meeting between Reagan and film director Steven Spielberg in 1982, following a special screening of the film E.T. at the White House. According to the legend, and that might be exactly all it is, Reagan is said to have leaned over and made a comment of how surprised people would be if they realised how true this really is. We might be able to dismiss these comments as misunderstood or even outright false. If, that is, it wasn't for the wealth of other comments and claims that surround Reagan. And furthermore, Spielberg would confirm the comment following the release of his film Super 8 during a promotional interview for the movie. He would claim that Reagan had in fact said, there are a number of people in this room who know that everything on that screen is absolutely true. While Spielberg claimed to take the comment as a joke by the one-time actor, he also noted that Reagan was not laughing, or even smiling when he said it. There are then more than a handful of United States presidents who have either had encounters with UFOs or have conspiracies surrounding these curious craft and their occupants surrounding their time at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Do all United States presidents become briefed on the situation upon taking office, or are they told only what they need to know? Perhaps some are told or find out through various means more than others. What we should note, however, is that all of these encounters and accounts have not come from the respective presidents themselves, Reagan aside to a certain degree, meaning that if there is a secret to be kept regarding UFOs and alien life, all those who have presided over the United States have, so far at least, remained tight-lipped on the subject. Maybe one day in the future, that might change. For now, I will simply thank you for joining me once more. Be sure to leave any thoughts in the comments and check out the links for further reading on any of the cases and theories we have been discussing here. Remember to subscribe to our channel and follow us on social media to keep up to date on future podcasts, articles and videos. And if there is anything that you want us to feature on future podcast episodes, perhaps you've witnessed a UFO yourself or you simply have a theory you want us to explore, then get in touch at marcus at ufoinsight.com. Until next time, goodbye and take care.